Hello, this is Patrick from Medieval Death Trip. You're about to listen to our much belated Halloween anniversary episode here on the next most spooky occasion I had available, the winter solstice, the darkest night of the year uh, here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Um, What you're about to hear was all recorded the day before Halloween, uh, but I just haven't been able to get the editing finished uh, until now. The reasons for the podcast's absence that I mentioned in this Halloween recording have basically held true uh, through up to now in December. There's nothing singularly catastrophic, just a steady pressure of other responsibilities that managed to displace podcast production over the second half of this year. Um, But I've got a schedule prepared for our next run of episodes, and I will be back with more in the new year, hopefully much more regularly. Um, I thought I'd get episode 90 out before New Year's, but now I've managed to get sick with a head cold uh, and recording anything more than this little intro before I set off for Christmas travel just isn't looking very likely. But I do want to wish you all happy holidays, uh, both a retroactive happy Halloween and a current solemn solstice, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and joyous festivals of all kinds, uh, and of course, a happy and healthy New Year. And now, in the great tradition of holiday ghost stories, let's get spooky and talk to some devils. This is Medieval Death Trip for October 31st, 2021, episode 89, Interview with a Devil. In the dark, you light the candles. You pour a circle of salt, hoping it will be as protective as the yellow rain slicker illustrated on the label. Words and words, you begin the summoning. And to your surprise, a voice pierces the veil, a voice from the past, a voice you struggle to recall. From the ether, the voice proclaims, Hello, and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? Uh, I come back to you now from that shadow realm where I have been dwelling in darkness, staring into one point of piercing light. Do I go into that light? No, it's the projector bulb that's throwing my slideshows up on the screen while I teach those shades scattered about the classroom, the occasional face lit eerily from below by a not-so-subtly-concealed smartphone screen. Yeah, it's, it's that boring and ordinary. Uh, I've just been busy and exhausted, and that's what swallowed up our episode production uh, for most of this fall. Um, my free weekends have gone into working on episode scripts, but I just haven't been able to get stuff to the recording and editing phase until now, um, barely in time for our Halloween anniversary episode. Uh, this one marks seven years of Medieval Death Trip, uh, though this last year doesn't feel like it quite merits being counted as a full year, uh, but I'll see if I can't make up for it a bit in the next few months. In fact, this Halloween episode is itself a bit of a quick and dirty little production, as necromancy often is, uh, because I just can't miss our show's anniversary. So we're going to be a bit light on the commentary this time and a little more text-centric, 
but the episode will be followed soon by what has turned into a monster of a conclusion to our medieval true crime miniseries, uh, a conclusion that is then going to echo into at least three more episodes I've been writing. So I've got plenty of new content for you. I'm just working a bit on finding those free, quiet evenings to actually be able to talk at length into a microphone. But we do have a hopefully suitably spooky theme for this Halloween episode. Uh, in the past, we've done Ghosts and Revenants, The Walking Dead, and Proto-Vampires. We've done Giants and a Werewolf. We've done Demon Possession. And today we return to the Infernal, but this time keeping it externalized. We're going to hear a couple of tales of Devil's Summoning by men curious to learn about the nature of the afterlife. We'll start with our oldest source, which harkens back to the 3rd century CE, though the actual text we have comes from the 11th century. This is an account of an anchorite of the Thebaid who summons a devil to answer questions about heaven and hell. Now, what does that mean? Uh, so, the Thebaid was one of the sites in the upper Nile Valley where early Christian ascetics went to live as hermits in the age of the Desert Fathers during the 3rd and 4th centuries following in the footsteps of St. Anthony the Great. And the term anchorite conjures up the extreme ascetics of the later Middle Ages, uh, like Julian of Norwich, monks or nuns who entered a cell in a church or abbey and remained in that room for the rest of their lives, or at least a prolonged period of time. In the context of the Desert Fathers, though, uh, anchorite could more simply be translated as hermit. Um, but the key idea is a deliberate withdrawal from the rest of human society. So, we have a hermit in the desert who summons a devil. In this case, not by witchcraft, uh, in its biblical sense, um, but by holy power. It's a very common trope in the lives of the Desert Fathers that they frequently have encounters with demons and evil spirits who often take the forms of beautiful women or of other holy men to try to tempt the hermits to break their vows. There's one rather striking example of this from the exempla of Jacques de Vitry. A father proposed to visit his son, who was a hermit in the desert. A demon assumed the form of a good angel and told the son to beware of the devil, who was going to visit him the next day in the form of his father, and advised him to have an axe ready to attack him with, so that he would not annoy him again. The son followed this advice and killed his father. And that's the entirety of that narrative. Uh, I'm not quite sure what lesson to draw from it, other than trust no one, uh, even angels, uh, maybe especially angels. But when I read that, I thought it seemed strikingly modern, like it could be a plot point in a movie in the Conjuring franchise or Paranormal Activity. Um, or actually, it's kind of close to the conflict in the 2001 film Frailty, with Bill Paxton as a father who is either a divinely appointed demon hunter or maybe just a serial killer. But typically, the demons who visit the Desert Fathers are the aggressors, assailing the hermits and monks. We have this artistic tradition of the temptation of St. Anthony, where he's frequently shown surrounded and sometimes clawed at by a menagerie of outrageous chimerical demons. But in this story, the anchorite remains in charge throughout, uh, it's certainly playing on scenes of Jesus confronting and commanding and casting out evil spirits in the New Testament, but it's a bit of a different circumstance from the usual temptation in the desert. The text I'll be reading is translated from Old English, 
We have no known Latin source for this particular story, and it doesn't come from the collections of the lives of the Desert Fathers that survive. We do, however, have many Anglo-Saxon and Irish texts featuring visions of the other world, and especially the torments of hell, so there was a strong tradition there for the writer of this text to draw on. Uh, and there are some Latin exempla with related content, uh, like the little homicidal tale from Jacques de Vitry, but also in the lives of the Desert Fathers uh, and the dialogues of Gregory the Great. Should I take a moment to define exempla for those who maybe haven't come across it? Uh, well, why not? So it's plural exempla, singular exemplum, a distinction I frequently, through linguistic carelessness, fail to honor and have had to try to correct in post in a fair number of my recordings. Uh, anyway, an exemplum is a short narrative which, as the name would suggest, provides an example of behavior, good or bad, from which one can usually derive some sort of moral lesson. They are the little anecdotes that sermon writers and homilists and even historians will drop into their discourse to illustrate points or just liven things up. So we've already seen one. Uh, here's another example of a quite short exemplum from the Dialogues of Gregory the Great uh, from his account of the abbot Aquitius. Upon a certain day, one of the nuns of the same monastery, going into the garden, saw a lettuce that liked her, and forgetting to bless it before with the sign of the cross, greedily did she eat it, whereupon she was suddenly possessed with the devil, fell down to the ground, and was pitifully tormented. Word in all haste was carried to Aquitius, desiring him quickly to visit the afflicted woman and to help her with his prayers, who, so soon as he came into the garden, the devil that was entered began by her tongue, as it were, to excuse himself, saying, What have I done? What have I done? I was sitting there upon the lettuce, and she came and did eat me. But the man of God, in great zeal, commanded him to depart and not to tarry any longer in the servant of Almighty God, who straightways went out not presuming any more to touch her. So, the lesson there is to remember to wash and, I guess, bless your produce before eating it, or you may get food poisoning, a.k.a. possessed by the devil. Uh, maybe that's the answer to the other exemplum as well. If an angel tells you your father is a demon, maybe try blessing that angel first and see if it sticks around. Anyway, on to our text. I'll be reading a translation of the Old English by John M. Kimball from 1848, attached as a supplementary text to his edition of the Dialogue of Solomon and Saturnus, as he names it. The Old English text is found in the manuscript Cotton Tiberius A3, alongside a lot of other varied religious content, while the basic story of an anchorite summoning a devil to learn about the afterlife is found in a number of homilies and related texts, uh, it is one stock exemplum, Tiberius A3 is the only place where the story is presented in full as an independent narrative. Now, I've learned from a 1972 article by Fred C. Robinson that Kimball's transcription of the manuscript text has a fair number of errors in it, uh, which would naturally be carried over into his translation, but they're mainly issues of some individual line readings and omitted words, and in the bigger picture, Kimball's translation still gives us the bulk of the story pretty well, so we'll run with it. Here's the story from Cotton Library Manuscript, Tiberius A. 3. It befell once on some occasion that an anchorite captured a devil through the might of God, and this was an anchorite of the Thebaid, 
who had become a man of very holy life through the might of God. Then began the anchorite to urge the devil greatly that he should tell him all the terror of hell pains, and also the fairness of the kingdom of heaven. Then said the devil to the anchorite thus, Though there were the tallest tree that grows on earth, and though it stood upon the loftiest cliff that is highest in the world, and then ye should bind at its top the feet of a man who had been before that but one night in hell with us, and ye should then let his head hang down so that the blood gushed on all sides out of his mouth and nostrils, and all the evils and the terrors which the inhabitants of earth have ever heard tell of from the beginning were to persecute him, and all the sea waves were clashing beneath him with all the terrors which the sea brings forth, yet will the man continue to bear it all with pleasure, even though ye add thereto a thousand years, and that thousand in which the day of judgment shall be, on condition that he shall never visit hell again. Yet quoth the devil to the holy man, Woe to them that shall have their dwelling place with us in hell, where is weeping without comfort, slavery without freedom, sorrow without joy. There is foulness without change, bitterness without sweetness, and there are hunger and thirst in hell pains, and mourning and lamentation, and the worst race of snakes all burning, and the race of dragons that never die. There is fire of sulfur, black and quenchless, and there is cold and burning heat and terror, poison and impatience, groaning and yearning, revenge and weeping, crime and murder, sorrow and torment, and there may no man help other. There hath the king no dignity, the prince no worship, nor there can any man sing songs of praise in remembrance of his God for the sorrow that oppresseth him. Yet quote the devil to the holy anchorite thus, and said, Were the earth with all its extension no greater than what is not covered with the sea, and were the earth of no greater breadth than the broad hell is, mighty as the ocean is that surrounds this earth, yet were it in comparison but as a dot which is pricked on a wax tablet. Then yet spake the devil to the anchorite thus, Though one should enclose the ocean with an iron wall, and all round about, and fill it with fire from the roof of heaven, and one should then surround it all with smith's bellows, so thick that each one should touch the other, and to each bellows a man were set, who should have the strength of Samson that destroyed the people of Philistia, and slew their nobles, and the same Samson had twelve locks of hair, and in each lock was the strength of twelve men, and should one set an iron floor over the roof of the fire, and that should all be filled with men, and each of them should have a hammer in his hand, and then all together they should begin to crash and beat with their hammers. Yet, nevertheless, for all this din, could not the soul that had been but one night in hell rest within so far as to forget its misery but one half hour of the day? Understand we now how the devil told the holy anchorite hell pains. So he told him also the glorious beauty of heaven's kingdom. And well he knew it, and easily might he tell it. For he was Wilhelm, a shining angel in the kingdom of heaven. But God expelled him from heaven for his presumption, and drove the haughty fiend into hell pain, because he made himself equal with God, and yet higher would have made himself. Therefore was he changed into a devil with all his comrades, and all of them also who were at his council, or who looked after it, they were turned from their angelic beauty into devils, and fell into the deepness of hell, 
plunged altogether. And therefore, every devil well knows how it is in the kingdom of heaven, with Christ in eternal joy. Well forever and ever it is with him who may dwell in that place. And then spake the devil to the anchorite yet thus, Although there were some hill of worked gold, all set with gems, at sunrise on paradise, and this should overhang the whole breadth of the earth, and on the golden hill should sit some royal child in the midst of his fairness and his life, and there might sit till life was ended, and though he had Samson's beauty and his wisdom, and the whole world were delivered into his power, with all the wealth and the treasures that heaven wilveth about, and to him Saturn's daughter, and though for him all streams flowed honey, and no annoyance should ever befall him in his life on earth, though all things delicate and sweet were produced for his sustenance, though for him the summer were continued and the winter short, and he were to a long life destined without grief or pain, he might not for sorrow dwell in all this glory, had he been before but for one night in heaven, and might thither again and see the face of the heavenly king and the happiness which is in heaven. When the devil had said all this to the holy anchorite, he dismissed him, and the devil departed to hell, his dwelling place. But come now, dearest men, let us deserve by our good deeds that we may come to our Lord, and there be and dwell with him forever and ever, to all eternity be forever honor and worship to the Lord, world without end. Amen. So, there we have a nice account of heaven and hell, with a lot of apophatic description, meaning to define something by going through all the things that it is not, or which it transcends. So, the devil doesn't really tell us all the torments of hell, but rather catalogs some horrible torments that all fail to express just how horrible hell truly is. Uh, And the same thing for heaven. It's a classic rhetorical technique and a staple of mystical discourse. It helps make the other world feel more vividly other, you know, beyond living experience, which is a bit different than many of the other visions of hell we have from the Middle Ages, where the speaker does presume to describe the torments of hell in quotidian detail, with the only transcendent factor being just the eternality of those torments. Our text is also not without its flaws, uh, not all of which can be laid at the feet of Kimball and some careless transcriptions. Some issues are baked into the manuscript itself, and when you only have one surviving copy of a specific text, as is the case here, you are rather at the mercy of the skill and accuracy of the original copyist, and many modern editorial disputes center on when to trust a scribe uh, that they knew what they were doing, and when to call something an error and change it. Uh, This is especially troublesome in poetry, where a weird word choice might be a mistake, or it might be a deliberately weird word choice for poetic effect. In our story, we have one passage that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, when we're shown a room full of cacophonous noise and told that a soul who had spent just a little time in hell would still not be able to find rest in that room because of their terrible memory of hell. Uh, That doesn't seem to work. Um, And indeed, the other versions of this story we have that pop up in the homilies Uh, They have the assertion that a soul who had gotten out of hell would be able to rest easily in such a noisy room because it would be nothing compared to the den of hell. That makes sense. Uh, But the error our copyist has made 
isn't as simple as just adding a missing not into the sentence. It, it seems more of a conceptual error. But given some of the oddness of apophatic syntax and the hyperbole that comes with all these descriptions of hell, I think we can excuse our monk from eternity in the hell of careless scribes. So, to continue to explore this episode's theme, I thought we might move from our nameless anchorite to one of the most recognized names in demon summoning and demon questioning, the scholar, wizard, and tragic figure of Faust. Now, here we're going a bit beyond our period, because while there may be medieval antecedents to the Faust legend, it really does seem to emerge in the 1500s, uh, and our earliest text is the so-called Faustbuch, uh, printed in German in 1587. Uh, this is what I'll be reading from, albeit from an early modern English translation printed just a few years later in 1592, which shows you just what a popular phenomenon this tale was. So, I'll read you two chapters covering the summoning and then the devil's account of hell. Chapter 2. How Dr. Faustus began to practice in his devilish art, and how he conjured the devil, making him to appear and meet him on the morrow at his own house. You have heard before that all Faustus's mind was set to study the arts of necromancy and conjuration, the which exercise he followed day and night, and taking to him the wings of an eagle, thought to fly over the whole world and to know the secrets of heaven and earth for his speculation was so wonderful, being expert in using his vocabula, figures, characters, conjurations, and other ceremonial actions, that in all the haste he put in practice to bring the devil before him. And taking his way to a thick wood near to Wittenberg, called in the German tongue Spisserwald, that is, in English, the Spisser's Wood, as Faustus would oftentimes boast of it among his crew, being in his jollity, he came into the same wood towards evening into a crossway, where he made with a wand a circle in the dust, and within that many more circles and characters. And thus he passed away the time until it was nine or ten of the clock in the night, and then began Dr. Faustus to call for Mephistopheles the spirit, to charge him in the name of Beelzebub to appear there personally without any long stay. Then presently the devil began so great a rumor in the wood as if heaven and earth would have come together with wind, the trees bowing their tops to the ground, then fell the devil to blear as if the whole wood had been full of lions, and suddenly about the circle ran the devil as if a thousand wagons had been running together on paved stones. After this, at the four corners of the wood, it thundered horribly, with such lightnings as if the whole world, to his seeming, had been on fire. Faustus, all this while, half amazed at the devil so long tarrying, and doubting whether he were best to abide any more such horrible conjurings, thought to leave his circle and depart, whereupon the devil made him such music of all sorts as if the nymphs themselves had been in place, whereat Faustus was rejuved and stood stoutly in his circle, aspecting his purpose, and began again to conjure the spirit Mephistopheles in the name of the prince of devils to appear in his likeness, whereat suddenly over his head hanged hovering in the air a mighty dragon, then calls Faustus again after his devilish manner, at which there was a monstrous cry in the wood, as if hell had been open, and all the tormented souls crying to God for mercy. 
Presently, not three fathom above his head, fell a flame in the manner of a lightning, and changed itself into a globe. Yet Faustus feared it not, but did persuade himself that the devil should give him his request before he would leave. Oftentimes after to his companions he would boast that he had had the stoutest head, under the cope of heaven, at his commandment. Whereat they answered, they knew none stouter than the pope or emperor. But Dr. Faustus said, the head that is my servant is above all on earth, and repeated certain words out of St. Paul to the Ephesians to make his argument good. The prince of this world is upon earth and under heaven. Well, let us come again to his conjuration where we left him at his fiery globe. Faustus, vexed at the spirit so long tarrying, used his charms with full purpose not to depart before he had his intent, and crying on Mephistopheles the spirit, suddenly the globe opened and sprang up in height of a man, so burning a time, in the end it converted to the shape of a fiery man. This pleasant beast ran about the circle a great while, and lastly appeared in the manner of a gray friar, asking Faustus what was his request. Faustus commanded that the next morning at twelve of the clock he should appear to him at his house, but the devil would in no wise grant. Faustus began again to conjure him in the name of Beelzebub that he should fulfill his request, whereupon the spirit agreed, and so they departed each one his way. Chapter 15 How Dr. Faustus desired again of his spirit to know the secrets and pains of hell and whether those damned devils and their company might ever come into the favor of God again or not. Dr. Faustus was ever pondering with himself how he might get loose from so damnable an end as he had given himself unto, both of body and soul. But his repentance was like to that of Cain and Judas. He thought his sins greater than God could forgive. Hereupon rested his mind, he looked up to heaven, but saw nothing therein, for his heart was so possessed with the devil that he could think of naught else but of hell and the pains thereof. Wherefore, in all the haste, he called unto him his spirit Mephistopheles, desiring him to tell him some more of the secrets of hell, what pains the damned were in, and how they were tormented, and whether the damned souls might get again the favor of God, and so be released out of their torments or not. Whereupon the spirit answered, My Faustus, Thou mayest well leave to question any more of such matters, for they will but disquiet thy mind. I pray thee, what meanest thou? Thinkest thou through these thy fantasies to escape us? No, for if thou shouldst climb up to heaven there to hide thyself, yet would I thrust thee down again, for thou art mine, and thou belongest unto our society. Therefore, sweet Faustus, thou wilt repent this thy foolish demand, except thou be content that I shall tell thee nothing. Quoth Faustus, ragingly, I will know, or I will not hew, wherefore dispatch and tell me. To whom Mephistopheles answered, Faustus, it is no trouble unto me at all to tell thee, and therefore, since thou forcest me thereto, I will tell thee things to the terror of thy soul, if thou wilt abide the hearing. Thou wilt have me tell thee of the secrets of hell, and of the pains thereof? Know, Faustus, that hell hath many figures, semblances, and names, but it cannot be named nor figured in such sort unto the living that are damned, as it is unto those that are dead, and do both see and feel the torments thereof. For hell is said to be deadly, 
out of the which came never any to life again but one, and he is as nothing for thee to reckon upon. Hell is bloodthirsty, and is never satisfied. Hell is a valley into which the damned souls fall. For so soon as the soul is out of man's body, it would gladly go to the place from whence it came, and climbeth up above the highest hills, even to the heavens, where, being by the angels of the first mobile denied entertainment in consideration of their evil life spent upon the earth, they fall into the deepest pit or valley which hath no bottom, into a perpetual fire which shall never be quenched. For like as the flint thrown into the water loseth not his virtue, neither is his fire extinguished. Even so, the hellish fire is unquenchable. And even as the flintstone in the fire being burned is red hot and yet consumeth not, so likewise the damned souls in our hellish fire are ever burning, but their pains never diminishing. Therefore is hell called the everlasting pain, in which is neither hope nor mercy. So it is called utter darkness, in which we see neither the light of sun, moon, nor star. And were our darkness like the darkness of the night, yet there were hope of mercy. But ours is perpetual darkness, dern except from the face of God. Hell hath also a place within it called Chasma, out of the which issueth all manner of thunders, lightnings, with such horrible shriekings and wailings, that oftentimes the very devils themselves stand in fear thereof. For one, while it sendeth forth winds with exceeding snow, hail, and rain, congealing the water into ice, with the which the damned are frozen, gnash their teeth, howl and cry, and yet cannot die. Otherwhiles it sendeth forth most horrible hot mists or fogs, with flashing flames of fire and brimstone, wherein the sorrowful souls of the damned lie broiling in their reiterated torments. Yea, Faustus, hell is called a prison wherein the damned lie continually bound. It is also called pernicious and exitium, death, destruction, hurtfulness, mischief, a mischance, a pitiful and an evil thing, world without end. We have also with us in hell a ladder, reaching of an exceeding height, as though it would touch the heavens, on which the damned ascend to seek the blessing of God. But through their infidelity, when they are at the very highest degree, they fall down again into their former miseries, complaining of the heat of that unquenchable fire. Yea, sweet Faustus, so must thou understand of hell, the while thou art so desirous to know the secrets of our kingdom. And mark, Faustus, hell is the nurse of death, the heat of all fire, the shadow of heaven and earth, the oblivion of all goodness, the pains unspeakable, the griefs unremovable, the dwelling of devils, dragons, serpents, adders, toads, crocodiles, and all manner of venomous creatures, the puddle of sin, the stinking fog ascending from the Stygian lake, brimstone, pitch, and all manner of unclean metals, the perpetual and unquenchable fire, the end of whose miseries was never purposed by God. Yea, yea, Faustus, thou sayest, I shall, I must, nay, I will tell thee the secrets of our kingdom, for thou buyest it dearly, and thou must and shalt be partaker of our torments, that, as the Lord God said, never shall cease. For hell, the woman's belly, and the earth are never satisfied. There shalt thou abide horrible torments, trembling, gnashing of teeth, 
Howling, crying, burning, freezing, melting, swimming in a labyrinth of miseries, scalding, burning, smoking in thine eyes, stinking in thine nose, hoarseness of thy speech, deafness of thine ears, trembling of thy hands, biting thine own tongue with pain, thy heart crushed as in a press, thy bones broken, the devils tossing firebrands upon thee, yea, thy whole carcass tossed upon muck forks from one devil to another. Yea, Faustus, then wilt thou wish for death, and he will fly from thee. Thine unspeakable torments shall be every day augmented more and more, for the greater the sin, the greater is the punishment. How likest thou this, my Faustus, a resolution answerable to thy request? Lastly, thou wilt have me tell thee of that which belongeth only to God, which is, if it be possible for the damned to come again into the favor of God, or not. Why, Faustus, thou knowest that this is against thy promise, for what shouldst thou desire to know that, having already given thy soul to the devil to have the pleasure of this world, and to know the secrets of hell? Therefore art thou damned, and how canst thou then come again to the favor of God? Wherefore I directly answer, No. For whomsoever God hath forsaken and thrown into hell, must there abide his wrath and indignation in that unquenchable fire, where is no hope nor mercy to be looked for, but abiding in perpetual pains, world without end. For even as much as it availeth thee, Faustus, to hope for the favor of God again, as Lucifer himself, who indeed, although he and we all have a hope, yet is it to small avail, and taketh none effect. For out of that place God will neither hear crying nor sighing, and if he do, thou shalt have as little remorse as Dives, Cain, or Judas had. What helpeth the emperor, king, prince, duke, earl, baron, lord, knight, squire, or gentleman to cry for mercy being there? Nothing. For if on the earth they would not be tyrants and self-willed, rich with covetousness, proud with pomp, gluttons, drunkards, whoremongers, backbiters, robbers, murderers, blasphemers, and such like, then were there some hope to be looked for. Therefore, my Faustus, as thou comest to hell with these qualities, thou must say with Cain, my sins are greater than can be forgiven. Go hang thyself with Judas, and lastly, be content to suffer torments with Dives. Therefore, know, Faustus, that the damned have neither end nor time appointed in which they may hope to be released. For if there were any such hope, that they be but by throwing one drop of water out of the sea in a day until it were all dry, or if there were a heap of sand as high as from the earth to the heavens, that a bird carrying away but one come in a day, at the end of this so long labor that they might hope at last God would have mercy on them, they would be comforted. But now there is no hope that God once thinks upon them, or that their howling shall never be heard. Yea, so unpossible as it is for thee to hide thyself from God, or unpossible for thee to remove the mountains, or to empty the sea, or to tell the number of drops of rain that have fallen from heaven until this day, or to tell what there is most of in the world. Yea, and for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, even so unpossible it is for thee, Faustus, and the rest of the damned, to come again into the favor of God. And thus, Faustus, hast thou heard my last sentence, and I pray thee, how dost thou like it? But know this, that I counsel thee to let me be unmolested hereafter with such disputations, 
or else I will vex thee every limb to thy small contentment. Dr. Faustus departed from his spirit, very pensive and sorrowful, laid him on his bed, altogether doubtful of the grace and favor of God, wherefore he fell into fantastical cogitations. Fain would he have had his soul at liberty again, but the devil had so blinded him and taken such deep root in his heart that he could never think to crave God's mercy. Or if by chance he had any good motion, straightwise the devil would thrust him a fair lady into his chamber, which fell to kissing and dalliance with him, through which means he threw his godly motions in the wind, going forward still in his wicked practices to the utter ruin both of his body and soul. So, that was from the anonymously authored, and anonymously translated, Faust book. Our final little selection is not so anonymous. That English translation we just heard served as one source for Christopher Marlowe's play, Dr. Faustus, from about the same time that that translation was circulating in the early 1590s. Now, I feel I've developed some skills as a narrator over the seven years of doing this show, uh, but I'm less confident in my raw acting talent, uh, so I hope you'll forgive me the cheat of a bit of digital voice modification to help distinguish our two characters in the scenes I'm about to perform, Faustus and the Demon Mephistopheles. If I could have hired the late Mercedes McCambridge to be the voice of the devil, I would have, but we'll have to settle for some Adobe audition witchcraft instead. So, let's begin with the first request Faust makes of Mephistopheles. Now, Faustus, what wouldst thou have me do? I charge thee, wait upon me whilst I live, to do whatever Faustus shall command, be it to make the moon drop from her sphere, or the ocean to overwhelm the world. I am a servant to great Lucifer, and may not follow thee without his leave. No more than he commands must we perform. Did not he charge thee to appear to me? No, I came hither of mine own accord. Did not my conjuring speeches raise thee? Speak. That was the cause, but yet per accident. For when we hear one rack the name of God, abjure the scriptures and his Savior Christ, we fly in hopes to get his glorious soul. Nor will we come unless he uses such means whereby he is in danger to be damned. Therefore, the shortest cut for conjuring is stoutly to abjure the Trinity, and pray devoutly to the Prince of Hell. So Faustus hath already done, and holds this principle, there is no chief but only Beelzebub, to whom Faustus doth dedicate himself. This word damnation terrifies not him, for he confounds hell in Elysium, his ghost be with the old philosophers. But leaving these vain trifles of men's souls, tell me, what is that Lucifer thy lord? Archregent and commander of all spirits. Was not that Lucifer an angel once? Yes, Faustus, and most dearly loved of God. How comes it then that he is prince of devils? 
Oh, by aspiring pride and insolence, for which God threw him from the face of heaven. And what are you that live with Lucifer? Unhappy spirits that fell with Lucifer, conspired against our God with Lucifer, and are forever damned with Lucifer. Where are you damned? In hell. How comes it then that thou art out of hell? Why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkest thou that I, who saw the face of God, and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with ten thousand hells, in being deprived of everlasting bliss? O Faustus, leave these frivolous demands which strike a terror to my fainting soul. What? Is great Mephistopheles so passionate for being deprived of the joys of heaven? Learn thou of Faustus' manly fortitude, and scorn those joys thou never shalt possess. Go, bear these tidings to the great Lucifer. Seeing Faustus hath incurred eternal death by desperate thoughts against Jove's deity, say, he surrenders up to him his soul. So he will spare him four and twenty years, letting him live in all voluptuousness, having thee ever to attend on me, to give me whatsoever I shall ask, to tell me whatsoever I demand, to slay mine enemies and aid my friends, and always be obedient to my will. And now we'll move further into the play, after Faustus has signed the contract to give his soul to Lucifer in exchange for worldly power and the service of Mephistopheles, the scholar's first desire is for knowledge and answers to some big cosmic questions. Now, Faustus, ask what thou wilt. First will I question with thee about hell. Tell me, where is the place that men call hell? Under the heavens. Aye, but whereabout? Within the bowels of these elements, where we are tortured and remain forever. Hell hath no limits, nor is circumscribed in one self-place, for where we are is hell, and where hell is, there must we ever be. And to conclude, when all the world dissolves, and every creature shall be purified, all places shall be hell that are not heaven. Come, I think hell's a fable. I think so still, till experience change thy mind. Why, thinkest thou then that Faustus shall be damned? I, of necessity, for here's the scroll wherein thou hast given thy soul to Lucifer. I, and body too, but what of that? Thinkest thou that Faustus is so fond to imagine that after this life there is any pain? Tush, these are trifles and mere old wives' tales. But Faustus, I am an instance to prove the contrary, for I am damned and am now in hell. How now in hell? Now, and this be hell, I'll willingly be damned here. What, walking, disputing, etc.? But leaving off this, let me have a wife, the fairest maid in Germany, for I am wanton and lascivious, and cannot live without a wife. From here, Mephistopheles brings Faustus a demonic concubine, uh, not wife, because marriage is holy. And Faust is not particularly thrilled by this demon girl, uh, but the questioning continues, with Mephistopheles first producing a book that contains all the knowledge of magic Faustus desires, and then another that contains all the knowledge of the natural world. 
And Faustus keeps expecting more, expecting the secrets of nature to blow his mind. But Mephistopheles is very dismissive of the questions. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's all here. It's all just in this one book. That's all there is to it. Big deal. Faustus keeps pushing for answers to his questions about the stars and the planets, and he gets nothing but the most perfunctory, wonderless answers from Mephistopheles until the interview finally gets shut down when the demon refuses to answer the question, who created the world? And ultimately, Lucifer himself barges on stage to steer Faustus back into the more traditional tropes of temptation with power and carnal pleasure. But these scenes do give us one oft-cited example of the transition from a so-called medieval worldview to a modern one, uh, where hell is no longer a place accessed through hell mouths or out-of-body spiritual journeys. It's instead a state of mind. Though this is one of those paradigm shifts that maybe isn't as much of a shift as the conventional narrative would make it out to be. To offer just one example, there's a rather notable moment in Beowulf where Grendel is described as a fiend on hella, a fiend not from hell or out of hell, but in hell, which seems to echo or anticipate Mephistopheles' statement. Grendel is called an evil spirit. He's damned. He is in hell, even when he is simultaneously in the mead hall ripping warriors apart. And possibly that's putting too much on a single preposition, but the Middle Ages are not without their own version of hell as a state of mind, or a state of being, as it were, alongside the more vivid and easy to illustrate and probably therefore more popular images of hell as a location of confinement and torture. And I'll wrap up Faust with a little recommendation. There's a really engaging adaptation of the Faust legend from 1994 by the Czech animator Jan Svankmajer. It utilizes human actors, puppets and marionettes, stop motion, and all kinds of analog filmmaking trickery to create a cinematic fable. It's really worth checking out. Uh, He also has an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, uh, just called Alice from 1988, that uh, I actually like a little better than his Faust, uh, but both are worth seeing. Uh, And both are currently streaming on the Criterion channel, for those lucky enough to subscribe to that. Uh, But you can also find them on DVD, and copies can be found circulating out there. And, you know, if you search YouTube for Svankmeyer with either Faust or Alice as another search term, uh, things may turn up of dubious copyright compliance, but uh, you can decide for yourself what devils you're up for bargaining with. And with that, we're at the end of this episode. I want to thank those of you who still, as recently as a day ago, joined on as Patreon supporters of the show, uh, even with such an unusually long hiatus. So thank you very much for your faith in the show, Catherine, Nathan, Lily, Carol, Eric, Alex, Karen, Carlowin, and Paolo. I do have some items written for the Patreon-only feed that I hope to record and post for you there soon. Uh, If anyone else would like to help the show out, you can do that on patreon.com slash mdtpodcast or by searching for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. You can get more information about the show, including bibliographic references for each episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also email me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com with questions or comments. Uh, I've, I've seen that I have some emails there that I haven't uh, gotten around to responding to yet, um, and I will get to those after I've put this episode up live on the feed. 
You can also get updates by following us on Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. All one word. Have a happy Halloween. Don't sign anything without reading it very carefully first. Maybe make the sign of the cross over the lawyer or the salesman or the goat-headed prince that's handing you the pen. And thanks for up to seven years of listening, depending on the variance of your own mileage. Again, thanks, and we will be back soon with more Medieval Death Trip.